This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. When you went to events, what what was usually your reasoning for choosing pizza? To you don't have to finish the sentence. Pizza. <laughs> is there pizza? Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share event planning tips for scientists. Make your next seminar, workshop, or outreach day a success. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 155. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab Hey there, Dan. Uh, second time this week I've seen you. Yeah, and this time we are in remote locations, undisclosed areas. But earlier in the week, we did break quarantine and sat outside at a, uh, I'll call it a, a house of beverages. <laughs> a beer establishment. That's right. We, I think, you know, we sat at a table outside. Both of, both of us are vaccinated. I'm, I'm one in. You've got both. We sat about six miles from the nearest table and had a great time. It was just so refreshing to see human beings again. Yeah, the last time we enjoyed a beer together in public was uh, at least 14 months ago. And and I can remember talking about, what do you think this uh, COVID thing's going to be like? And I don't think we could have imagined what actually would happen, but it was certainly enjoyable to be back out together amongst the people once again. Yeah, we don't need to revisit that. Things are, are starting to look up, and I hope they are for everybody listening as well. Absolutely. Well, Dan, uh, speaking of beer, we have one here that I am excited to try. This is different from what we usually have. Uh, we're going to go for a coffee stout tonight. I'm a little concerned because it's about uh, 9 p.m. Uh, local time here, and we're going to drink this coffee stout. So we'll see how well we sleep tonight. Yeah, I, I will promise to record every hour on the hour <laughs> up until about 5 a.m. when I fall asleep. If this happens to be caffeinated, I'm going to be miserable. But this is the Drip Line Coffee Stout, and it comes from Crooked Stave Brewing in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and they note that it's brewed with artisanally roasted beans from a place called Huckleberry Roasters. So if you're in Denver, Colorado, you can probably get your hands on this. Do you know what makes something artisanally roasted versus just roasted? Um, I think it's probably how small the batch is. I have no idea, though. The beans are very small. <laughs> roasted by an artisan, Josh. There That's you how you know. There you go. Uh, I like that name, Crooked Stave Brewing. That's a cool name. So what do you think of this coffee stout, Dan? We don't drink a lot of, uh, a lot of stouts on the show, but what do you think of this one? It doesn't taste very stouty to me. I'm expecting a Guinnessy. I don't know. It's like a little bit sweeter than that and a little bit hoppier almost. Yeah, it definitely has a bitter characteristic. I'm going to say that that is from the coffee. That's going to be my, my guess there versus a, a hoppy guess. bitter. Good guess. You know, I will say this one's a little more thin than I expected. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the mouthfeel that I'm getting um, is a little more a little more watery, a little more thin. It, there's definitely the bitterness, but I'm not getting, I'm not getting that robust coffee flavor that I normally expect or associate with a coffee stout, or even, Dan, really that I associate with a cup of coffee, to be honest with you. Did, 
Did you pour it in a glass like a human being? Because I'm I'm drinking out of the can like a animal. I did. Like, oh yeah, that is dark. I can see it on on your screen here. Yeah, I feel like a a, a porter stout really deserves to be poured in a glass to see that dark color. Um, it had sort of that nice tan colored um, foam cap on top, but it really bubbled away pretty quickly. Dan, you can see that in the zoom. You know, it's just sort of flat looking right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll call this one okay, which means that at 3 a.m. when I'm still awake, I'm going to be even angrier, Josh. So thank you for, for picking this one up. This was the last of the groupings of beer that I bought a couple of months ago for us to have on the show. So if any listeners have any suggestions for uh, types of beer they would like for us to sample, please shoot us an email, podcast at hellophd.com, or send a tweet at us, and uh, I'll do my best to uh, acquire some for the show. Yeah, expand our horizons. We'd appreciate it. Uh, we also appreciate our patrons. We have a couple new patrons. First, thank you to Brian uh, and also to Lisa for your support of the show. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. And we also, as usual, would like to thank our friends at Promega. You know, being a scientist is more than just running experiments and analyzing data. Whether you're giving a presentation at a conference or you're writing an article on your recent results, Promega can help. Head to the Student Resource Center to check out webinars on scientific writing and poster presentations starring uh, yours truly and you too, Dan. Uh, you can visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. And finally, if you work with human or mouse sequencing data, then you'll want to know about BioBox Analytics. They offer end-to-end data analytics for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. Leverage no-code bioinformatic pipelines generate publication-ready plots at the click of a button, and consolidate insights from popular public databases. Sign up for the waitlist and be the first to gain early access to your free BioBox account at biobox.io. All right, Dan. Let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Dan. This is going to be an interesting topic this week that on the surface may seem like a weird topic to be doing right now uh, on the heels of a pandemic, of an ongoing pandemic. Uh, But we're going to talk a little bit about how to plan a scientific event. Yeah, we're on a bit of a planning kick, aren't we? We are. We talked about planning your PhD last show. Uh, We've talked a lot about how it can be great for your CV and just for your sanity to get involved in some other aspects of of science that are maybe outside of the lab. So maybe that has to do with getting together with some other grad students to explore different types of careers or invite a speaker um, in a topic that you and your, your fellow students are interested in. But, you know, I think what this show, how this show is going to be helpful is there's a lot that goes into planning an event, Uh, no matter how small the event uh, you will always be, I'm always surprised how much work really goes into it. And I know in my job now, I do a lot of planning of scientific events at my university. Uh, I've been involved in, in that quite a bit, and I worked a lot with students doing this. And there are a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to think about. We're going to try to cover as many of those as we can on the show so you will be equipped when the time comes, and I think it is coming, that we can have scientific events um, in person. But even if you're planning a scientific event virtually over Zoom, I think a lot of these tips today will help. The inspiration for this show came from sciencemag.org, an article that was published just this week called How Not to Plan a Scientific Event. And this was by Adam Rubin, 
who is the author of a book that some of you may have heard of, Surviving Your Stupid, Stupid Decision to Go to Grad School. Uh, and he writes this from the point of view of kind of a tongue-in-cheek, um, here are things not to do if planning an event. So I encourage you to read the article. It's really fun. Uh, but we're going to flip that on its head a little bit and actually give you uh, the flip side, give you some hopefully good tips and strategies for planning your next event in your department or program. Yeah, and it may feel far off that you're going to be planning an event with human beings in it. But I agree with you, Josh. Almost every student will do some kind of event. And these, you know, as a as a student, I was really interested in uh, entrepreneurship and I was interested in some industry jobs. And I remember specifically, well, why don't I host like an industry speaker that's going to come to our normal seminar room at a different time and I'll get all these grad students there and it'll be my chance to like introduce this guy and then I'll have this great, you know, friendship with him and I'll probably just get a job at this company after I host this seminar. And, uh, it didn't go that way for me and not a lot of people showed up and it was a little awkward because I didn't do all the things we're going to talk about today, but um, it doesn't have to be a seminar. It could be, I, I know there are outreach events to high schools and there are online um, meet and greets and there are all sorts of things people can do, students particularly. And it is a good way to, to meet people, to form relationships, to have a bond with somebody by inviting them or, or by organizing something or working with them. So soon enough, we'll be doing it in person. But right now, it's happening on Zoom. That's right. And, you know, one of the themes that's going to come up a lot as we go through this is the importance of planning ahead and starting early. So uh, you never know. It may now may give you the time to dream about an event you want to have later in 2021 or even in 2022. Um, and so... Not too early to get started thinking. Kick us off. What's what's the first tip, or what's the first thing not to do? All right. So uh, so Adam in the in the article tells us what not to do, and so the first thing he says not to do is certainly don't check the calendar to see whether your proposed timing conflicts with any major events. Uh, so clearly, that is an important thing to do in the early stages. Uh, one of the first things you're going to want to do with an event is you're going to want to pick the date. When are we going to do this? And it can be so important to think about who your target audience is. You know, are you going to be mostly advertising this to other students in your department? And if so, then you might want to check your departmental calendar or your program's calendar, maybe the national holidays. Uh, and you'd hate to plan something and then find out that your event overlaps with departmental seminar or a class that's required for all grad students. And so none of them can come to your event um, or that the university's closed that day. So be sure to check that out before you pick your date. That's hard to do so far in advance a lot of times, although I think departmental calendars are probably published pretty well in advance, I would guess. You know, for my department, seminar was always at the same time, on the same day, in the same room, and so you could at least avoid that. But but even knowing that, I don't want to book my event the hour after that hour. You know what I mean? There are... Even if it's not going to overlap exactly, people's ability to leave the lab to go to another event can be hindered by what's happening around the calendar. So uh, I think paying close attention to that is really important. And, and, you know, another advantage to getting started early with choosing your date, maybe you do pick a date early where there are no other departmental events. Well, then you've kind of laid claim to that day, right? And if others in the department want to plan their own events, um, and you can make sure yours gets on calendar, then suddenly uh, others will avoid your event because you 
planned earlier. Does time of day matter? Um, I think it can. You know, I think it is insightful for you to pay attention maybe to events that you have been to with other students or, you know, other people in your program or whoever the target audience would be for your event. You know, if you go to events on Monday morning at 9 a.m. or Friday afternoon at 4 p.m., how many people show up? If one, a lot more show up at one time versus the other, then maybe that's a lot of useful information. Depends on how much pizza and beer you can offer, probably. <laughs> there you go. And we'll talk more about that. Especially that Monday morning one. People definitely come for the pizza and beer. Yeah, and we will talk about that in a moment. One other calendar you should check is uh, meeting calendars. So if you're in the microbiology department, you don't want it to be anywhere near the weeks leading up to you know, the, the microbiology meeting or the weeks at, what is it called? ASM? Oh yeah. For microbiology, the big ASM conference. That's right. You don't want to plan your meeting that overlaps with that meeting for sure. Right. People are preparing, they're, they're traveling, they're doing all of these things in the weeks surrounding that major event and nobody will be there uh, at your seminar. So there are broader things outside of your department that attract the type of, you know, the same people that you're trying to get to your event. Yeah. And it can be useful to ask around. I think it's all. I think it is always a better experience and will lead to a better event if you plan with other people versus trying to do everything yourself. So certainly if you're planning with a group of other students, then together you might know about a lot of different potential conflicts. Uh, but also, you know, ask your PIs, ask some other folks in the department, let them know like, hey, dates that we should look out for and try to avoid. Um, and then you'll probably have your bases covered. Okay, so we've got a, we've got a date and a time picked. Now what? All right. So the next big decision that you need to make when planning your event is where are we going to do this? What is the venue? And this can be a tricky one uh, unless you have a very defined audience that you're targeting. So for example, if you know, all right, this event is going to be for students in my program. There are 20 students in my program. So I know the audience is going to be 15 to 20 people. So this is the perfect size room. Um, but you may not know that. Maybe you're planning a more broad event that you're going to advertise to departments all across your university or maybe even beyond your university. Um, this is going to be less of an issue if this is a virtual event on Zoom uh, because as long as you have a certain type of Zoom account, you can uh, accommodate that many people. Although do make sure you have the type of a Zoom or other online platform account where you can accommodate the number of people that you plan to attend or else you'll have people getting kicked off <laughs> who wanted to come to your event. Um, but I'm going to talk for a moment as if we're doing an event in physical space um, on campus. And one tip that I will give that I think can be really helpful is have people register for your event. And so this doesn't mean you're having them pay for registration, um, but just filling out a simple web form. You could do this with a, with a Google form or something similar to that. And that way you, first of all, capture the contact info of people who are planning to attend so you can follow up with them to send further details and reminders to keep the excitement level high. But really the most important reason to, to ask for registration is you have a more solid idea about who's planning to attend and how many people are planning to attend. That way you can make sure you have the appropriate space to accommodate because it can be equally awkward if you book an auditorium that seats 100 people and then 12 people show up. Or if you book a room that seats 30 and it's 15 minutes before the event starts and it's standing room only and people are queuing up in the hallway. And I have seen both happen before <laughs> and neither are great. Um, so by possibly uh, or by requesting registration ahead of time, 
you really get a good grasp of the potential audience that'll be there, and you can make some adjustments ahead of time if you need to. Um, how does that sequence work out, though, Josh? Because if I am asking people to sign up, you picked already, or do you think I can say this event's going to happen in six weeks? Tell me if you'd like to be there, and and I will email you later and tell you where it is based on how many people sign up. Or or do you make a last minute change? You expand the the venue and direct redirect people. How how would you adjust? Yeah, I think you you have to try to make some sort of prediction. Uh, some general prediction of how many people you think will be there. Uh, And then I think booking an initial room is good. That way, when you send the initial communication out, unless that initial communication is way, way in advance, right? Like six months in advance, like a save the date thing. um, I think certainly if you're six weeks out, you need to have the room itself nailed down and you're sending those exact, uh, that exact location out to people when you're advertising the event. So I think you have a space in mind, but what this registration will allow you to do is pivot if you need to. So you've booked a space that seats 45 people, but suddenly you have 70 people registered. Well, now you're going to need to make a change. And you know what? That can be really great because if you need to adjust up, you can try to find a larger space and then you can reach out to all those people and say, wow, this has been a really popular event. And because of that, we're moving to an even larger space. And if I'm somebody registered for that, I'm like, oh, cool. Like this is going to be a popular event. Great. I was the first to sign up. Yeah. In, in my case, what I should do is, is just register a broom closet somewhere. <laughs> and then when a second person signs up, then I'd be like, look, we got to expand everybody. There's, <laughs> there's just so much demand. I never have, I never had the problem where it was, too many people for the space. I always had the problem where it was too few. But then, you know, as, as your example you gave, Dan, when you were planning an event, uh, was one issue you didn't exactly know how many people were going to show up. That's true. Yeah, I, I didn't have any way of signing up. Um, I I had advertised, and we're going to talk about that. But yeah, I didn't have a sense. I begged a lot of my friends to go so that it wouldn't be empty, and they did, which was nice. But um, I broke almost every rule you've given so far, Josh. It was I think it was at like 7 o'clock at night. I don't know. It was it was really weird hours and in an odd spot. And uh, yeah, it's fine. I didn't, I didn't get a job there, but <laughs> I found other work. You sure learned a lot. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more as we go through this list about some other reasons why um, asking for some sort of registration can be important. But one thing while we're on this topic of booking a venue... I want to reinforce what I said just a minute ago of the importance of planning early and booking space early. So this might not be quite as much of an issue right now for in-person events, because at least if your university is like my university, most classes are virtual, there's not a lot going on in person. But there will come a day fairly soon where, just like in the past, classroom space, auditorium space really is at a premium, um, especially the really good rooms. If you know what I'm talking about, there's probably, there probably are rooms that might seat the number of people you need, but there are certainly those rooms that are the newest ones with the best AV and the most comfy seats and the best location. And those, sometimes you might have to book your event months in advance to get those rooms. They're not the type of space that you may be able to get six weeks out. Particularly with these semester-long schedules that a department will get. That's right. And a lot of universities' classes actually get preference um, over and ongoing events that happen every week get preference um, to these one-off events like the one you're scheduling. And so if you don't want to be relegated to Monday morning at 8 (laughs) a.m. to get the space you want, uh, you're going to want to try to book that space um, as much in advance as you can. All right, Dan, so 
So let's let's get to the next step, and this is a really important one, but also it can be a really tricky one. So you've picked your date, you've picked your location. Now you have to let people know that your event's happening. Um, so let's talk just a little bit about publicizing your event. So no one is going to come if they don't know about it, no matter how cool it is. And I think what is important for publicizing your event is start with whatever tools are used by your program or department to get the word out about events. Again, right now I'm assuming, you know, if you're doing an event where your target audience are people in your department, how do you hear about events in your department? And whatever, if there's a, if there's a communication method that people at your university are used to using, use that, right? Don't reinvent the wheel uh, if there's a way people are used to getting information about events. Uh, maybe it's a departmental listserv. Um, you know, you can usually ask your program administrator if if you can post something there. You can type up your email and they'll usually send that out for you. Flyers are a big thing around college campuses still. Um, I always question their utility, but I think they can be good if they're in the right location. So, Yeah, I was going to ask about that because there are always those you know, three-sided bulletin boards (laughs) or the sort of three-legged bulletin boards that are on every college campus that are just covered in dangerous-looking staples (laughs) and shreds of paper. And we all still do it. And I just wonder how often a person walks up to that and says, oh, there's an event coming up that isn't from, you know, 1962 (laughs) that's just still stuck up here. Yeah, I think flyers can be useful depending on who your target audience is and how smart you are about putting these up. So I think placing 15 well-thought-out flyers can give you more bang for the buck than just papering 100 flyers randomly across campus. So, you know, think a little bit about yourself. Are there flyers that you read? Like, is there a bulletin board where you have actually memorized the seminar flyer from November 2019 that's still there, right? Oftentimes a great location... Outside the elevator. That's the only place you need to be. That's what I was going to say. Places where people queue up and stand and wait can be a great place to put flyers uh, at the elevators. Uh, If there is like a food service place or a coffee shop on campus where people are usually waiting for their order or waiting in line, those can be great places to put your flyer as well. And also... Don't be shy about taking down flyers that are from like 18 months ago. (laughs) Uh, Don't let those old, uh, irrelevant flyers crowd out the information about your event. But, you know, beyond beyond that, utilize social media. If you know people in your target audience are active on there, Twitter can be great, especially if you're trying to spread the word beyond your department or beyond your university. Um, But if if you're trying to advertise beyond your own little niche, your own research environment at your institution, if you or someone in your planning group have contacts at some of those other programs or universities, connect with them because they're going to know better than you are what are the ways that people at their university consume information and learn about events. And chances are they're going to be willing, especially if you know they think your event will be cool and they're excited about it, they're going to be willing to advertise it where they are. And coming from them, it's probably going to be much more of an impact uh, than, than coming from you. Mixed media, it sounds like. Try a bunch of different things. That's right. And I want to get back to that registration idea too, because I think another advantage to doing that is it can give you some insight and some data on if your communications and advertisement methods have been effective so far. So maybe you did a couple email blasts to some listservs and only three people have signed up. 
Well, maybe then that'll be a time for you to think about some different to boost uh, to boost enthusiasm and, and boost the number of people signing up. I also like the signing up because we're all busy. I'm going to see the poster by the elevator. And if I don't do something about it in that moment, like if, if I just have to hold that piece of information in my mind that in three months on a Tuesday I need to be somewhere, it's, it's just not going to happen. But if I can go put my email address in and then you know, it'll send me a a reminder the day before or whatever it is, then that moment of attention that I gave it reminds me as opposed to I gave it a moment of attention and then I've totally forgotten it because I had 15 other things going on. Yeah, and you know, you can do creative things like, you know, you could put a QR code on the flyer that takes you directly to the link and you can just make sure in the text on the flyer that it's obvious that people can do that. Um, or you could use a URL shortener, a link shortener to think of a creative and easier to remember name to go to your registration page. But you know, I would recommend whatever your communication method is, especially if you're doing communication over email or social media. Let's say you send an initial blast out three months before the event. That's great. But don't assume that, oh, well, I sent that one communication out. Everybody who wanted to, they saw it and they saved that email. Uh, They're as excited as I am. Uh, you know, there's a high volume of email that comes through, and it could be possible, even if they thought it seemed cool, that maybe it just got buried in all the other email. So don't be afraid to send a follow-up email uh, maybe every month or maybe a couple weeks before the event, or even the week of if you still have room. What's your hit rate on people who sign up versus people who show up? That's a great What's your percentage. That's a great question, Dan. And I think that is something to keep in mind. Yeah, it can vary. And not everyone who signs up will show up because life happens, experiments happen, something you thought you had time for in your email six weeks ago, when it comes down to it, you don't. It's not going to be a hundred percent, but you can keep that percentage high by staying in communication with the people who have registered, give them reminders and and also possibly thinking about providing incentives for people to come and those we will talk about now. So Dan, when you went to events, what, what was usually your reasoning for choosing pizza? To go- <laughs> you don't have to finish the sentence pizza. <laughs> Is there pizza? Is, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners identify with this. Josh, I'm only on this podcast because you buy <laughs> beer for us. That's true, Dan. I drop off beer at your house for the podcast. I am, I am still motivated by the same incentives I was in grad school. Yeah, so one great way you can boost enthusiasm or boost attendance, I mean, this is something departments do to make sure people come to their departmental seminar, have sandwiches or pizza or if it's in the morning, coffee and donuts. Um, and, you know, that is certainly something if you have the budget to do it. Um, that can certainly be an added incentive for people to to come to your event. Not to keep sort of hammering this home, but that can be another key reason to do a registration because you don't want to waste a lot of money buying five dozen donuts for one dozen people. Uh, lucky for them, I guess. <laughs> is that a waste, Josh, or is that an opportunity? <laughs> or even worse, Dan, have you ever gone to the event and there's like two pizzas there and there's like... 75 people in attendance. <laughs> infuriating. And then there's always the guy that takes three slices, <laughs> even though he can see there's a huge line behind him. Yeah, don't be, don't be that guy. 
but you know, a few a few notes on on providing food and or beverage for your event. Um, and obviously, here we're probably talking about in person events. Um, do make sure you check on your university's policy on food and beverage purchase. So maybe you've done some fundraising or maybe you've got some sort of university sponsor and you've got a little bit of a budget to spend um, on your event. Just in normal times, different institutions can have different uh, policies on what is and is not allowed to be purchased using university funds or grant funds, depending on the source of the funding for the event. One thing I know, Dan, at my own university right now um, in the aftermath of COVID and the pandemic, that has had some impact on budgets. And some institutions have actually tightened up some of the restrictions on what can be purchased with university funds. I know at my own university, normally we regularly would provide food for events, but actually we're not allowed to purchase food at the moment. Uh, We're hopeful that that's going to change soon, but you want to be aware of those policies before you take the departmental credit card and try to swipe it at the grocery store and realize you're not allowed to buy food. How likely is it for a student to get access to those department funds? I I wouldn't have assumed that was an opportunity for a student hosting their own gig. I think it depends. Um, I think there are organizations on campus that oftentimes will sponsor student-led events. I know we have a, a graduate and professional student foundation, and they often will support, uh, they have mechanisms for students to reach out if they want to get funding for an event that they want to host. And also departments sometimes have some available funds to uh, support activities that their students are putting together. Um, I remember, Dan, when I was a postdoc, um, I helped to to start a postdoc association in my department. And one of our first big events was we had a postdoc research symposium in our in our department. And we wanted to have some lunch and serve some food. And so we went to the department chair and, you know, we pitched this idea for this event and we actually got permission to use some departmental funds for, um, for this event. And we also, we reached out to some, some local biotech companies, you know, some of those reps who always come around (laughs) trying to, to sell you stuff in your lab. Uh, We let them know what we were doing and we said, Hey, you know what? You can set up a booth at this event. if you'll buy us some uh, donuts or whatever for the event. And that also worked out, but you want to make sure you know what your university policies are uh, for purchasing certain things. And this is especially true if you want to have any sort of alcoholic beverages, like if you're hoping to provide beer or wine at your event. Most universities, at least the ones I know if you're in the United States, um, have some regulations uh, regarding who can do that, when you can do that. In my own institution, it has to be a certain time of day, and you have to have a licensed bartender that you have hired to be there. You can't just put a cooler of beers in the corner <laughs> for people to have. So you want to make sure you don't break any university rules uh, when you're having your event. Yeah, they get serious about serving alcohol. Um, I don't think that was always the case, but that has been the case for a long time. All right, Dan, one thing that Adam mentions in his How Not to Plan a Scientific Event is he wants to remind us that... Audiovisual technology always, always works in any room on campus. Has it ever worked even <laughs> once? There, there's nothing more amusing than seeing a room full of PhDs trying to troubleshoot a projector. Or, or now Zoom. I mean, I, I don't know how we've been at this a long time, and I still, <laughs> I still have the case where it's like, you're muted, you're muted. No, you're still muted. <laughs> you start talking over each other and... So it can be really important, especially for an in-person event where you're going to be using audiovisual, you're going to be 
needing to hook up a computer to a projector. Maybe you're going to want to use a microphone if it's a larger room. Test that stuff ahead of time. You know, get to the room early. If you have a guest speaker, find out what kind of computer they will be using and bringing with them and allow them to arrive early to test out their own equipment in the room before people start showing up. When I used to give a lot more presentations in previous jobs that I've had, I would carry around the MacGyver bag of every possible (laughs) adapter to every other possible adapter because you get into the room and it's like, an RCA cable or whatever. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to hook this to a USB-C? I need a coaxial yeah. to USB. But I had every single one of them. And and so I was, usually I'd forget whatever I connected it to and I'd leave without it. But, you know, I, I made it through a lot of talks by having in my bag all of these different attachments. Yeah, I have left VGA or HDMI adapters all across this great country of ours as I've traveled and given talks different places. But I think that is really important to do is uh, make sure you've worked out a lot of that technology and you've tested out as much as you reasonably can ahead of time. But even even then, get to the room early uh, in plenty of time to not only set up, but make sure the equipment is working for you on that day. And, and this is going to go a little bit into events where maybe you have a guest speaker that you've invited to come in who maybe isn't familiar with that room or, or your campus um, make sure if you're if you're putting together a schedule for your guest speaker, um, when you're building their agenda, give them some downtime during the day. Don't just pack their entire day from the moment they get breakfast with some grad students all the way until they go to bed at dinner. <laughs> you know they have no time to even go to the bathroom. But especially if they're going to be if a big if sort of a highlight of the day is going to be them giving a talk or some sort of presentation. Give the speaker a little bit of downtime right before their presentation so they can look over their slides one more time, get a drink of water, use the restroom, and also make sure their technology is set up because chances are they want to do a good job and they don't want to be really rushed or stressed with technology not working out the way they want it to. I have always appreciated those breaks when I have been that speaker, so I, I can affirm that. And, and this goes to the last thing I wanted to say, Dan. Um, again, if you're bringing in a guest speaker, tell them what to expect. Give them some... Um, you know, set their expectations for what their day is going to be like. Try to get their schedule planned as far in advance as you can. Now, this is something where I don't think you need to have the exact schedule of your speaker worked out two months in advance. Um, But maybe a few days before they arrive, send them the draft of their agenda, who they're going to be meeting with to give them an opportunity to maybe do their own research and kind of know who am I going to be talking to and formulate some questions they might want to ask to know what kind of breaks they're going to have. Maybe they are juggling some other meetings or communications or work that they need to try to fit in during the day. And so knowing that they've got an hour break here and there can be, uh, can be helpful. And along those lines, again, to go one more time back to the, the registration recommendation, I think it can be good courtesy to give them some expectation about how many people they're going to be presenting to. Are they going to be doing a roundtable discussion with 10 graduate students or are they going to be standing up in a lecture hall presenting to 75 people? Um, Both are great and I've done both, but it can be a little disconcerting as a speaker when you don't know exactly what you're walking into and you can't mentally prepare. No one ever expects the broom closet either when I introduce (laughs) them to the mop. (laughs) Please clean up after yourself when you go. All right, Dan. Well, I hope this was useful. 
you know, I don't really think people are in the midst of planning events that are going to be happening in the coming weeks, but I think we are getting there. And if anything, I think now as we're starting to see over the distant horizon, the, the ending of this pandemic, Hopefully we have some time to start looking forward to doing some things in person, do, having events again, attending workshops again together with other people, eating cold pizza <laughs> that at least is free. It's been put out by the department. And now can be a great time for you to maybe connect with some other grad students or people in your department to start brainstorming, like what would be some really cool workshops or events that we can plan because it can be a great experience a great opportunity to help you stay motivated learn about some new things you're interested in and also it's a great cv booster yeah and i would love to hear from our listeners you can tweet to us at hello phd or email us podcast at hellophd.com tell us about what has worked for you or what you've seen other people do that you think is a really just turned into a great event and you think more people need to know about it or or tell us the horror stories. <laughs> like, what is the worst AV failure or, you know, the, the biggest empty room with a speaker at the front? Uh, you know, those stories are, are sometimes cathartic and fun to hear as well. So uh, you, you can reach out to us in those two ways. And Dan, we will post in the show notes the, the full article that was the inspiration for this episode, How Not to Plan a Scientific Event by Adam Rubin uh, from Science Mag, um, Science Careers. And uh, it's, it's a fun, quick read. And so we would encourage you to check it out if you want to hear more about this topic. Great to have as a checklist for when you're planning your next event. Well, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, as I mentioned, at podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, or you can tell your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your fellow student about the show. And that's how we... Uh, grow our audience and and help more people make it through grad school uh you can support us by becoming a patron go to our website hellophd.com click the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons all right dan this was a fun episode i am getting excited about going to a workshop in person watching someone in the flesh fumble with a projector in a room Uh, i can't wait for that to happen again yeah, it took a year of a pandemic uh, of quarantine to make me think, man, sitting in a dark seminar room and trying not to fall asleep. That sounds pretty exciting right now. <laughs> I'm ready for it, Dan. I'm ready for it. I'll tell you what will keep me awake. Uh, this coffee stout. <laughs> it could be psychosomatic, Josh, but I feel wide awake. Well, I will check in with you about 2 a.m. and see how you're doing, Dan. Maybe we'll record the next episode then. We'll, we'll see you then, Josh. All right, Dan. See you then.